0: Chapter 4 This morning. Uh, Our goal is to finish uh, the book. Uh, I mentioned last week that hopefully we'll finish the book this week, and then we'll do call it two classes the last two Sundays. One is likely going to be what does rejoicing mean in the book? Why is it discussed? What does it mean for us? That may take two classes, so we'll start that next week. Uh, and if it doesn't take two classes, then we'll, we'll finish with a kind of like a survey or a review uh, of the whole book. Uh, last week, we covered one through nine of chapter four. This week, our goal is to uh, start in verse 10, and then we'll go through the end in verse 23. But to start with, uh, we'll read the chapter. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right, we'll take about a minute and a half. If you want to write down some notes, things you notice, um, things you'd call out, and then we'll have some discussion about the section. About 90 seconds for that. All right, what did y'all notice? Y'all don't say anything, Alan's going to make the first comment. I'm just putting that out there. I don't know if you see that as a feature or a bug, but (laughs) Joshua, all right, a different show. Great. So great. So Paul talks a lot about their support for him, but he stresses in that conversation that he is not seeking the gift from them, but he is acknowledging, one, that their gift existed, and two, that it's of great benefit to him, but he seeks the credit that accrues on their behalf because of their good works. Great. What else do you see? Kathy? I think it's interesting when he says, Yeah, I love when he talks about um, he's learned to be content in both scenarios. Yeah, um, and, and in my personal opinion, contentment is likely one of the largest issues we deal with as a people. Um, the concept of contentment and delayed gratification um, he gives us the reason why he can be content, though. And what's the reason he gives us? try again? All right, so because he has everything he needs from God. So if you look at um, 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So it's, it's interesting, how do people usually... Use Philippians 4:13. In most settings, if someone says, "Well, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me," what sorts of things does that usually mean? Why are they saying that? I can bench 500 pounds. <laughs> so, so Barry facetiously has said, "I can bench 500 pounds," but I actually think in many cases, although that's a myth facetiously. Often, this verse is taken out of context and used inappropriately to indicate the ideas of achievement. That when when I'm facing something, when I need to do something, that because of Christ, I can do anything and I can achieve whatever. That is not what this is about. (laughs) So the next time you're tempted to say, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what does... Paul reference when he is using that passage, or when he he says that? Sherry? He has strength in Christ. All right, well, he's referencing that he has strength in Christ, but why is that important in this conversation? Brian?
1: I think he's saying here that no matter what happens to me, I'm okay, because I have Christ.
0: Yes, he is making a statement related to contentment, not... Because of Christ's power, I can do whatever I set my mind to. That is a misapplication of the passage. Instead, no matter what comes my way, whether it is um, financial abundance or financial lack, through all of those situations, I can do everything I need to do. And so what what is the thing you need to do?
1: um, I think what he's talking about is being happy in all circumstances. His happiness is unconditional or not based on circumstances, but based on a higher understanding of his relationship with God.
0: Yes, I agree. So the idea here is that regardless of the circumstance, because he has the power of God on his side, he can achieve what he needs to achieve. I would not say that's happiness, though. Karen? If we have nothing in all this earth and we have God, we, he, he is the goal. And
1: whatever He's doing, God's name, God will make sure He's able to do
0: it. Yes, so what Karen said if we have God but we have nothing, like in terms of personal gain, we can still say that we have all things; that we can do all things through Christ, because He is enabling us to attain what? Would you say?
1: Contentment. So we can be content, not necessarily content where we're at. And sometimes being
0: content is not being happy, but content with where we at. Yeah. So, the, the so the, the tension here sometimes is. Um, We use the term happy. Um, In this book, what what term does Paul use? It's never happy. It's, It's always joy, which is distinct from happiness. They are not the same. And here, when he talks about contentment, I believe that that's directly related to salvation. I can be content no matter what I have, because what I'm seeking is not... Financial, it's not physical, it's not health, it's not life in this world. It is life eternal. And because of that, I can be content because most of the things that people are not content with, well, those aren't really related to salvation generally. Chip, what are we going to say? Yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't back to chapter four where
1: he says, up? You, you can't give up the
0: Yeah, he was able to count all those things as dung because of the riches that he looked forward to in salvation. <laughs> Yeah, so in case you didn't hear that, the, the difference between contentment and complacency, that sometimes we may accidentally think that contentment means, well, I'm fine, so I don't have to, I'm not, I don't have to seek further, because I'm okay. I don't need more, so I'm, I'll just stay here and, and um, atrophy, potentially, in that. Mara? Yes. And so this kind of gets back to some of the conversation we had at the end of class last week. That when we look for what Christ can provide for us and Christ can do for us, we don't have many, you might even say if any, promises about our physical situations. And so when we focus on the physical, it leads to discontentment. Whereas we have great promises about the spiritual life that that God has provided for us. Yes sir. Yeah.
1: A like, I'm just going to say,
0: Let's go back to verse 10 11 12 around there. Um, so it Verse 10 says um, he's rejoicing because now they've revived their concern for him. That's what you have if you're using the ESV. The majority of versions um, put it that way. I really like, and and this doesn't often happen, I really like what the King James and New King James both say. um, And that's that their care for him has flourished again. I love that that language of thinking about care and concern for others as something that flourishes. Um, I like it partly because it makes me think of flowers, and flowers are beautiful. And that when we have care for others, ideally that flourishes and is visible in a way that's that's beautiful, like flowers are beautiful. Uh, Question for you, though. Do you think he's chastising them? I mean, you could read it as chastising, oh, right? Really? Now, at length, you've revived your concern for me. Glad you guys are chipping in again. Took you yeah, Took you <laughs> Yeah. good job on the vacation, taking, thing, taking a break. I, I don't think that that's what it means. I mean, if you, if you look at the rest of Philippians and the relationship that he's talking to them about, the way he describes it, it wouldn't fit that he's chastising, I don't think. Where's, yeah. Yeah, okay, so you lacked opportunity. You would have if you could have. Um, uh, here, when he talks about having concern, how does, how does concern show up? All right, so the way their concern was manifested is that they sent Epaphroditus. And then Paul gives us a similar example also, right? Paul's concern for them leads him to do what? Yeah, send send Epaphroditus back, but especially his concern for them leads him to send Timothy. Concern manifests itself in action and, and I would argue physical action. That when you have concern for someone, um that is more than sending than doing as small a thing as possible, if that makes sense. And that, that instead of just sending a letter by way of any courier he could come across, Paul sends his letters with couriers that know the brethren that they're being taken to. I think that's because when he sends letters, he's showing his concern in that letter, but he also shows his concern when he sends people that can care for the brethren in a way that those, those letters indicate is necessary, which would lead Timothy's Timothy to coming here. Um, uh, Looking at my notes real quick. Um, Anything else y'all would say in that section? Call it 10 through 13. All right. So the next couple of verses. um, What sticks out to you? So, super interesting thing to notice. Paul's acknowledging that they were the the only um, group that supported him at various times. Um, Why do you think that is? You have to theorize or maybe look at other passages. I mean, think a little bit about Paul's history. I think there's at least one reason you could point to. Why might people be hesitant to support Paul? Super obvious. He killed a ton of Christians. And even though he has changed, you could see that people might be hesitant to support him. Well, we don't know if he's going to go back to doing that, you know, church hunting thing again, hunting Christians again. Um, he killed my mom or he killed my dad or, you know, something. Right, I, I don't really think we should make light of it because there, are, amongst the churches he went to and had some relationship with, there is great likelihood that he physically persecuted or even killed some of those Christians' relatives. But, but at Philippi, we don't know if that's the case or not, yet they take on the duty of supporting him in that work throughout throughout um, Macedonia, um, he says that they wouldn't take part in giving or receiving that's an interesting thing because what what does it seem that Paul is talking about mostly yeah giving He's, he commends the Philippian church because of the giving that they had done. Um, but but here he says that those other groups weren't taking part in giving or receiving. So what's the receiving that they that they would be part of or not? Philip, are you going to say something? Alan?
1: I was going to say that it would be letters that he would write to. Okay. Letters people he would send that came back.
0: Okay, so... Um, the receiving could be letters; uh, it could be people that Paul has sent. Um, and so, what else would that entail that they are refusing to receive? What did you say, Christy? Instruction. Instruction. That they're rece- they're refusing to have a relationship with Paul. If they don't have a relationship with Paul, they're not going to be able to receive the teaching that he has for them. So, in some way, what they're refusing to receive is further teaching potentially. Julie? I, I totally
1: different I just looked at giving and receiving as one thing. They gave all received. It's a just a description of that. Is
0: that not right? I, I'm not gonna say it's wrong. Um, so what Julie said if you did here is that she looked at it as just it's, it's two statements or two verbs related to one action. That on their side they give, on Paul's side he receives, so giving and receiving is one thing. Um, I I think that's possible. I I don't think it's wrong by any means. Um, But I guess as I read this, I think about it as there being two actions that happen, which Julie does reference. One is, um, are we going to share ourselves, our goods, our funds, our lives with other people? Are we going to give that to them? And then, are we allowing those people to share back with us, to re- for us to receive? And so if giving is always a one-way street, I give to you, but I don't receive anything back, what, what does that do to the relationship?
1: It definitely makes a one-sided
0: it makes it one-sided, and throughout the book here, we see Paul use references to the relationship that he has with them. He calls them partners. He talks about partnership. Well, if we just kind of write checks, but we don't actually take part in receiving anything back, that means that the relationship doesn't actually develop. You know, Technically, for communication to occur, both sides have to share information, and information has to be decoded and then understood. Well, if we're only doing half of that, that means it's not that the relationship is one-sided. I think it even more strongly that the relationship doesn't exist. And so if you apply this to us, to our congregation, how can we make certain that when we take part in the act of giving, we're also actively taking part in the receiving? Think about it in terms of evangelists. Put it in that lens. Kathy? Usually, when you support
1: evangelists,
0: you will really support it very often. Yeah. Yeah, so what Kathy said, if you didn't hear, is that generally when you support evangelists, it's natural to get some communication or correspondence back. We often call those reports. Well, when we send money, we do that as a congregation. When we receive reports, if we don't do that as a congregation, we've, we've limited the ability for that relationship to grow. That's why I love so much what Drew did a couple month, uh, month or two ago when we read those reports in the assembly. I would love if we more actively did that as a group. Because as a group, we send, and as a group, we need to receive, uh, to, to establish that relationship with the evangelists that we support. And you could also infer that a great way to do that, which I've said this once before in class, is to send not only money, but to send people. That's what they did when they wanted to to develop love and concern and share with each other as they sent people back and forth. Jacob? Is there another
1: way of receiving, and you know, Paul mentions here that the, what he was supplied with, uh, the gifts that they sent, were a sacrifice pleasing to God, and because of that, God would supply every need of theirs. Um, is there a sentence in giving, and uh, a the spiritual element of that by doing that in the right disposition we receive favor from God. So there's a receiving in that way too. Yeah, so
0: um, in case you didn't hear what Jacob said, the concept as you move further down into the to the verses um, relates their giving to sacrifice um, and he actually leans into that metaphor a little bit more which we'll talk about. So is the receiving potentially that we receive favor from the Lord and that that's part of the provision that's discussed. Um, I I love the the mention uh, or moving us to the sacrifice concept because how does he describe it? How does he describe their giving when he talks about it as a sacrifice?
1: Fragrance.
0: Fragrance, a fragrant offering. So what does that make you think of? Like actual sacrifice. So if you, if you go back to Exodus 29, where all these sacrifices are mentioned, at least three times as, each, as different sacrifices are described, the sacrifice is described, the sacrifice is put on the altar, and then what happens is described as a fragrant aroma that goes up to God. And so here he uses that same idea of fragrant aroma to describe what their sacrifice is like to God. And so this is one of those times where we have to not accidentally ignore what the Old Testament has to say. Sacrifices were a key part of their relationship with the Father, a key part of their understanding their position. Um, And and these sacrifices that they were to make did the same thing. It, It was beautiful To God. And so when we think about sacrifices and service to one another and sharing and giving and receiving, I think we have to we make certain that we take the next step to think about how that pleases God. It's not just, well, I'm doing this for you, so it's it's nice, or you know, this is a caring thing to do, but instead it's something that the Father receives in the same way that he received things like the burnt offering on the on the altar. It's the same thing, potentially. Barry. <laughs> in, uh, verse, uh,
1: verse 14 and verse 15. In verse 14, the word share is used. Verse 15, uh, the word partnership is used. This is, this is uh, both translated uh, over 80 times in the New Testament. By a number of words, but we think of it as fellowship. But this is these are fellowship words, konanea words. And uh, it's just interesting to note how many times he talks about fellowship. It's fellowship in giving and receiving, it's fellowship uh, in taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, but one thing it's never fellowship, uh, interestingly, in the Bible, is just having a Halloween spaghetti feast, which there's nothing wrong with that. But. Uh, <laughs> But, but it is—it's uh, just not ever used that way. We think of fellowship. Sometimes we just think of eating. And uh, in, in the Scripture, these, these are one of many ways that's translated. It's really
0: interesting to see. Yeah. So the words like sharing and partnership, having this being related to fellowship, and and really, I, I think it's important to say that fellowship is what we're doing here. That's what we do together. We have that on different. Topics like you mentioned, fellowship in the Lord's supper, fellowship in giving and receiving, those those things, but the work and worship that we do together is our fellowship um, as a family of God's people. Um, (coughs) Pardon me. What do you think about this "even" in Thessalonica comment? Why does he say "even"? Any thoughts? I'm not certain you can dis- that, that this is something that we can say we know for sure, but it's an interesting turn of phrase to me that he says, well, you even did it in Thessalonica. Sherry? I think it was a smaller church. Thessalonica was smaller than the United Church? Hmm. I, I don't know that Thessalonica was smaller. Chip? He
1: had So Paul was having difficulty in Thessalonica, they supported him in Thessalonica, which he did, and he had to be had to escape life. Um and yet the Philippians were supporting him, that could have
0: backlog on Philippi Philippi. Alright, so what, what Chip said is Thessalonica and Philippi are very close together geographically, and so very reasonable to expect that things that happened in either city affected people in both cities. First, how do we know, like, what was Paul's departure from Philippi like in Acts? What had happened? A little hint. Philippi can be Philippian. Yeah. Yeah, they put him in prison. They had to apologize and let him go. And Paul, like, they, they left Philippi pretty quickly Although they did stop on the way out to make certain that they saw the brethren before they left. So he, they left Philippi in a cloud of persecution. Um, then they're in Thessalonica. There's persecution in Thessalonica. The Christians are being persecuted by really two groups. They're being persecuted by Gentiles that were unhappy uh, with a couple different things that were going on. But also this is the time you can remember that effectively there's a group of Jews that are following Paul around and everywhere he goes they're stirring up trouble and uproar against him. And so the, the even in Thessalonica I think can refer to two things uh, potentially. One is they're willing to do this even though it may bring some backlash against them. Uh, very reasonable to expect that, that that could happen. But also it's reasonable to expect that when Paul left Philippi that the, that the brethren in Philippi were likely persecuted. I mean, you, you kind of it's reasonable to assume that what had happened to Paul would happen to them and not a lot of time between them. And so also they even could refer to how they had so little or they were persecuted so greatly yet at the same time they were seeking to serve and provide for Paul even when they were going through hardship. I think both ideas you can support Uh, with scripture pretty well. Um, But I think it's really important to think about like we don't get an out. Like if, if we're having difficulty or struggle, we don't get an out that we, well, we just don't have to sacrifice or we don't have to share. We don't have to take part in giving and receiving because like it's really hard for us right now. Scripture doesn't seem to indicate that my current hardship gives me reason to not have to take part in these things. And in fact, when you look in 2 Corinthians, part of what Paul commends brethren for is that they gave when they had nothing and that the Lord enabled them to do that. Um, what else in this section? Anything else? I'll just point out
1: that the, the two sides, two sides of nature, um, the two sided nature of a regular aroma. The this was a pregnant you know, um, like an acceptable sacrifice uh, was to God and I think we learned a little bit we should have a little bit of appreciation from that about how God receives um, our gifts if you will our, our commitment our sacrifices our service um, so instead of thinking so much sometimes about what we're doing sometimes it helps to see how someone uses that of God.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, if you look at verse 19, going back to this idea of supply, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Again, I think there's there's potential that this can be taken out. Of context are used inappropriately, similar to 413. 413, we talked about often people use it in terms of achievement um, as opposed to contentment. Um, In 19, my God will supply every need. That verse gets used a lot to talk about physical provision. I I really, I, I may be hammering this too hard. I really don't think that this is physical provision. I struggle when we read the rest of the the book to th- when we when we understand what God is supplying that that the needs that he's talking about are physical because that's not what the book talks about generally in terms of what God provides. Also, we know generally that's not what God is talking about when he talks about provision. And so I I'm I'm mentioning that here just because um I think when we connect this to physical giving, which is what's being done here, we can sometimes misapply and connect, I've received full payment, I'm well supplied, I've gotten the gifts from you, and then my God will supply every need of yours. That that, that we accidentally say, well, they gave him a physical thing, they gave, Epaphroditus sent a physical thing, um, but so that means that what must be provided here is physical as well. I don't, I don't think that's the case. And, and I'm bringing it up again because the, the whole health and wealth gospel stuff that, that encourages people to serve God because they will get things is a perversion of this verse. And we need to stand against that idea. And we also need to stand firm in the concept that when I don't have the physical things that I want, that's not a sign that God's opposed to me. That the the things he's making provision for and supplying all of our needs for and that we can do all things through him for are specifically related to hope, mercy, grace, and salvation in Christ Jesus. Jerry. There's one thing we need. We need to do Yeah. And I see all those pointing to that. And yes, we've got some of the physical needs being met here. Earlier in the book, he said, I appreciate
1: your prayers. It's not a physical thing being done. But he's saying all those things are towards it. Like.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because people not even look at heaven as a physical thing. I'm going to have a mansion. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to have everything I want. I'll be rich in heaven. And I
0: don't think it's not going to be that way. Right. And that is why I don't appreciate the song I've got to mention just over the hilltop as much as many people do. Like seriously, go look at the chorus in that in that song, and you might should question how much we should be singing it. I know I might get a lot of like complaints about that, so just email them. Don't do them in person. <laughs> Great. 2
1: Corinthians chapter nine. He's talking about yes giving and supply. He says in uh, verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For this ministry and this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also It would seem to me from that text that, that he's saying uh, your giving spirit uh, will result in God blessing you more, so that you can continue to give. You can continue to do this good work that you've been doing, not at all for your personal gain and benefit, but it's so that you you are the kind of people that would be.
0: Yeah, so in case you couldn't hear Barry, he took us to 2 Corinthians 9, which is a fantastic passage on giving. He talked about towards the end of that section where the discussion is on God blessing you in order that you can be generous. You're generous, he blesses you so you can be more generous. I would also encourage you to look at the beginning of that passage where Paul where Paul talked about the fact that the beauty of giving and the relationship that we have in giving and receiving is that when I have plenty, what am I called to do? Give to others. Because one day, what's going to happen? I won't have plenty. And what are they called to do when they have plenty? Yeah. Give. And so this, this idea, again, when, when we're talking about the physical blessings that do come from God, they're actually given in order to bless other people. They're not given in order to bless me if you're going to talk about that concept and when we can be blessed in the acts of giving and receiving together that strengthens us as a family of God's people I can't look at Jerry when I talk about this
1: but it, it's, it's a difficult passage in the fact that in the Old Testament God blessed people physically Yes. yes. And that's where people get confused and say, He's going to make me like Abraham or Job or any other rich person. Yes.
0: There are people who serve God that were fabulously wealthy. There are also people that serve God that were not. And so physical wealth is no indicator of righteousness. Um, as we close to get towards the end of class, I do want to talk a little bit about verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. So Paul is urging grace to be with them in their spirit. What is grace? What does it mean? Somebody's got it. I say it. Unmerited favor. If you ask someone what grace means, they're going to say unmerited favor. You'd use a passage like Romans 3.24 to talk about. We're justified by his grace as a gift. But I think there's more to grace than just that idea. Often when we talk about grace, we call it unmerited favor, um, which then we actually need to just define for people what unmerited means and what favor means. So it's kind of, I don't know that that definition's really working out for us. Um, but I think, I think like lots of words in the English language, I think grace has multiple meanings. We talk about and focus so much on unmerited favor, but there's another concept of grace that is talked about in Scripture. So, for example, if you look at 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God's able to make all grace abound to you so that you may abound in every good work. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 10. By the grace of God I am what I am, this is Paul speaking, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. If you take those two passages, what's what's he how is he talking about grace? I don't think you would say it's unmerited favor. What is grace doing? Julie?
1: accomplish what God wants to accomplish. For instance, um, chapter 1, verse 6, He who started a good work in you will carry it to completion uh, until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, and,
0: and, and what's, read verse 7. While you're in verse 6, go ahead and read verse 7. Do you have it right there? It
1: is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart.
0: Yes. yes. So God's grace in addition to unmerited favor is uh, it's really difficult to describe. Think of it as there's a, there is power that we can tap into. <clears throat> yes ma'am.
1: It is God who's working in you, enabling you to both do desire and to work out his purpose.
0: Yes. So one verse six, those two thirteen, is that right? So 1 verse 6 and 2.13 have this idea laid out that God is completing something in you. He is changing you. And then in verse 7, he says that they're partakers of grace. When we, when we talked about that verse, we talked about it primarily as that unmerited favor. We both partake in salvation, essentially. But I think in a, in a, a more in-depth way, grace here is being presented as something that changes us that makes us capable of doing things that we could not do without grace. It transforms us into something that is better and more capable than if we didn't have it. So, I could not think about that without considering passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah that we all have studied a lot because they're Barry's favorite verses. Um, I'm pretty sure. That, That talk about the gospel rolling into a desert as a river and it changes that landscape into something teeming with life well i think these verses that you see are talking about how grace does that for us it changes us from something that was incapable to something that is capable of doing more than we could do on our own or without the father so when paul is sending to them and saying the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, he's ending the, ver- the, the book the exact same way he started it in verses 1-6 and 1-7. And urging them to be enabled to serve more, to be partners in the grace and the gospel of God more, and to take part in the Lord's work more fully. Thank you all so much for your comments. Um, Like I said, next week we'll be talking about rejoicing and joy. So if you want to do any prep work for that, you could go through the book and note places that talk about joy or rejoicing. And we'll be talking about all those passages next week. Thank you.